All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Eglap. It's me, Paolo, your host. And today's episode is really special because today we have one of the vice, president, pre- vice presidential candidates here with us. So this person can be described in so many ways. You know, he's accomplished so much in his career. But, you know, just to keep it very simple and straightforward, he is a former um, representative of Akbayan Party List back in, um, back in the day. He's also a professor and now vice president, vice presidential candidate. Please welcome to Iglap, uh, Professor Walden Bellio. Mr. Bellio, uh, welcome to Iglap. Yes, thank you very much, Paolo, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be with you. And I'm terribly sorry I couldn't, uh, the internet wasn't allowing us uh, to get in earlier. Right. Yeah, well, that's how it is here in the Philippines. Maybe we can discuss how you would uh, help change the internet in the Philippines, how to make it better. But uh, sure. before we b- begin, uh, Mr. Bellio, uh, how about you introduce us to who you are, aside from all of your accomplishments? I mean, you know, when people do research about you, it could be written in a book, all the things that you've done in your life and what you've accomplished. But who is Walden Bellio behind all of these accomplishments? Oh, well, first of all, with respect to the introduction that you made, uh, yes, I served in the House of Representatives from uh, 2009 to 2015. And I was representing the uh, party list, uh, Akbayan. Uh, But I just wanted to make it clear that I resigned as a member of Akbayan when I resigned from Congress in uh, 2015, uh, because I had, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Akbayan was aligned with President Aquino, and I had major differences with uh, President Aquino because he had double standards on corruption. And um, since the party continued to be aligned with Aquino and I could no longer support Aquino, as a matter of principle, then I resigned from uh, both Akbayan and from the um, and from the um, and from Congress. So I just wanted to say that I am no longer identified with Akbayan uh, because I mean to you know for for the sake of um, myself um, and Laban ng Masa that I am the chairperson of and of Akbayan itself, it would be important to clarify that I have no affiliation with Akbayan at this point in time. But in terms of the larger other issues, um, I have been um, mainly um, uh, an activist and an academic. Um, I began with activism around human rights issues back in um, the dictatorship times. I was organizing on human rights um, uh, um, in the United States, um, uh, you, know, um, you know, to cut off military aid to Marcos. Um, after that, I uh, joined the university, University of the Philippines, um, where I was a professor of sociology back in the late or mid-1990s. Uh, that's also when um, I established um, with um, uh, a friend of mine, Focus on the Global South in Bangkok, where I um, uh, 
uh, it's it's um, it's the leading think tank uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, progressive think tank in Southeast Asia on social uh, and international issues, uh, and it's affiliated with uh, Chulalongkorn University, which is one of the leading universities in Southeast Asia, and um, I. I have been active on international issues. I have been identified with the anti-globalization movement. Um, I am a socialist. I hate capitalism. You know, I'd like to face it out because it's an outmoded mode of production. Uh, and um, uh, I have been active as an activist on and a, a and um, a representative uh, in Congress on pro. Uh, poor uh, um, causes for uh, pro women causes, pro LGBT causes for the um, advocacies of the workers, and you know, and um, you know that's that's what I am, and I now belong to uh, this coalition. Labanang uh, Masa, and I'm a candidate of Partido ng Lakasan Masa uh, in the uh, vice presidential presidential elections, and my running mate is Leody de Guzman. Uh, we are running up on a program of democratic socialism, and uh, because we really believe that this country needs to leave behind this, you know, very very uh, decrepit social system that continues to plague our people, uh, you know, with uh, tremendous suffering. And uh, we're using the elections as a means to uh, um, to both educate our people, uh, not in a patronizing way, but to try to empower them so that uh, together we can change uh, the system. Uh, it's an uphill challenge because we have all these idiots that, you know, the professional politicians like Bong Bong Marcos, Sara Duterte, and all these jerks, you know, that stand in the way of Philippine progress because they just have their own vested interests to protect. We're out to kick them out, kick them out of, you know, politics um, through the electoral means, of course. Okay. And, uh, and uh, we're determined to really fight on to ensure that um, we turn the 2022 elections not only into a victory for us, but as a step for the transformation of the system. And we're appealing particularly to young people, um, uh, you know, because um, uh, young people really are uh, um, the sector of the population that make things change. It is the natural duty of um, the youth uh, to rebel, and you know we are uh, appealing to people to join us in this rebellious transformation of a rotten uh, economic and political system in the Philippines. And uh, so that's that's in short what you know this is our campaign is really all about. It's challenging the status quo, it is making sure we don't return to the crazy, idiotic, miserable past of Marcos's father, to which Bongbong Marcos, Marcos Jr. wants to bring us, 
and not stay in the present, you know, where uh, candidacies like Lenny Robredos and uh, Pacquiao and um, Soto want to stay in the present, uh, we want to go forward to the future and to address real issues with real solutions. Now, since you, since you gave me such latitude to introduce myself, um, you know, I, I hope you didn't mind if I, I gave the sort of introduction that I would prefer to to do. Not at all. Not at all. No, we just want to get all these things. So, yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Well, that was an amazing introduction. Uh, and like what I said, you've done so much in your life, you know, you're a professor abroad and a juncture professor abroad. You've served in Congress. You've been pro-poor. You fight for the masses and all these things. So right now, um, to our viewers, if you have any questions for Professor Bellio, aside from the ones that I'll be asking him, please do just comment it down below, and we'll do our best to, you know, to tackle your questions. But also for our viewers and our listeners, uh, we have five parts in terms of the questions that we have. And the first part is we'll be talking about the election and the CNN uh, debate that Mr. Bellio is a part of uh, last Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for the VP debate. So, Mr. Bellio, the first thing I want to ask you is, so you have been, as we would call it, you have been very, um, trend. you're trending right now and you're very hot in the sense that from the things that you've answered in the debate, um, a lot of people are talking about you. So in the CNN vice presidential debate, you called Marcos Jr. and Sardinette the idiots, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, do you think that the public, and you've, sorry, you've called them idiots and cowards. Uh, do you think that the public will find that statement, you know, like rude or below the belt to the point that it would affect your candidacy? And also, sorry, I just wanted to let you know that uh, Inquirer, if I'm not mistaken, uh, contacted Sarah to ask for her comment about your comment to her, towards her and all she said was no comment my team and i are discussing it so i kind of want to know so it's like a two-parter question first is do you think your statements would affect your candidacy and second what do you think about sarah to not even be able to give a comment about what you said about her and her running well you know i think you know definitely there were people who didn't like the way that my style, okay, of really coming to the point. Um, and many of those are paid hacks of Duterte and, um, and Marcos. Uh, some of them, uh, of, of, you know, are of the more traditionalist views, you know, and um, uh, some of them are not used to the kind of political style that I have. I, by the way, I hate Donald Trump. Let me tell you about that. I don't like his politics. But to be honest, I find his style refreshing, you know, and uh, I think he copied that from me. Okay, so um, and, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. So, um, but I think um, that, uh, most people, I think, who saw us in action, actually, ever since the beginning of this campaign, when um, my uh, you know, I said I'm running against the axis of evil of Duterte and Marcos and said, fuck you, Marcos. Uh, I think that electrified a lot of people because I said what they wanted to say for a long time. 
and so much traffic on the internet came in saying thanks for putting into words what we found wanted to do for a long time but we can't say it because for because of our upbringing we tend to choke on those words no? um so um so i think that the response um i was expecting it there was a barrage of trolls that basically um you know you know they you know for lack of a better thing they would call me boorish ill-mannered uh, uh old man bitter old man you know and you know you know when trolls are operating you know they they tend to repeat the same formulaic phrases but the vast majority especially on twitter were very supportive of uh you know my calling out sarah duterte and marcus uh telling them i i just didn't call them um uh, uh you know cowards uh, uh i called uh bong bong marcus in particular a fucking coward and i told that i said they were idiots and um uh you know if i was trending on twitter that's because people found that refreshing um of course there was some shock but that's part of the you know part of uh, you know the politics that i really want to introduce in this country because uh, we need some confrontative politics uh to get to where people are at bring them to the issues directly and not hem and haw not go around uh not in traditional philippine elite political style try to be friends when you really hate one another uh try to make pleasantries and courtesies and now talk uh uh and you know um nicely um like in the presidential debate yesterday um we saw how the presidential candidates of politicians um there uh, did not even want to mention the name of marcos and were so polite with one another although they had major criticisms of each other's programs so i don't like that i you know that's that's part of the tragedy of philippine politics that uh, people refuse to be direct um and uh, refuse to confront people with the problems of the country so that there can be real real um uh, solutions and um and uh, as i said uh, that's me and um it it's not the first time i've been controversial i've been controversial all my life so that now in the age of social media i was trending on twitter it wasn't something new um because uh, i've been controversial all my life because of the kind of politics i espouse and my political style which i think i said trump capped okay uh and um i tell it as it is uh so but i just want to clarify that statement that i completely disagree with trump's politics but i find his style something that he copied from me okay um before we get to trump and all uh, actually i did watch the presidential debate yesterday and i do agree with you that only two candidates mentioned marcus jr and those were of course caliodi and actually lenny also uh, mentioned about marcus jr but everyone else like what you mentioned uh <clears throat> tried to avoid naming him 
and such. And why do you think that is? I mean, I know you say because they're the, like the classic politicians and all these things. But aside from that, why do you think it was only your running mate, Calliope and Lenny, who were able to mention Marcus Jr. by name? Well, I won't speak for Lenny since uh, he, you know, she has, you know, kept, you know, I, I have my own uh, uh, problems with Lenny, but let me not speak for her here. But for Calliope, it's because we're not, you know, we're not, we're not uh, backed by the vested interests. This is a campaign that has a shoestring, you know, a budget uh, from, you know, thousands of supporters who are working people. Um, so we don't, there, there's no reason why we can't come to the point and mention things, you know, as they are. Uh, and that's why, um, uh, you know, the, 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 I think the other candidates, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think they were sort of playing the usual political mode. If I don't attack somebody in public, then they won't attack me in public, you know? So let's, I won't want to get into that sort of trouble. Now there were, there have also been candidates who don't want to mention names because, um, suppose their opponent won the election, okay? Then they probably are thinking, well, I can't offend this person right now because I would like to have a cabinet position. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, so they're keeping, what do they call it now? They're hedging. If they don't make it, then if somebody else makes it, then, you know, I will be your cabinet. I will be in your cabinet. So there's that kind of calculation going on. We're not doing that sort of calculation, you know. Um, we're not being sanctimonious about the way we approach politics, you know. We, um, you know, we're not, uh, you know, sort of saying I'm, I'm morally better than you are. No, this is none of that, that crap. Um, we're basically saying that, you know, for the sake of the people, you have to be really honest with them. And... If you, uh, you know, if, if you feel like somebody is violating a principle, um, you know, and is trying to pass herself or himself off in public, uh, then uh, it is important to um, not let that go through, but to, in fact, um, bring out and, and uh, bring out the truth about a certain position, about a certain person. No? And the truth may be harsh, but, you know, um, that's what we're here for. We're trying to clean up Philippine politics, not only of its being beholden to vested interests, but to clean it up of its hypocrisy. No? So in political style and in substance of our politics, we're a very transformative kind of candidacy. And um, that... You know, as I said, some people will not like that. You know, some people may be squeamish about hearing certain terms in public. But at the same time, especially among young people, there is a refreshing quality to that. Uh, you know, if you have a candidate that tells it as it is, uh, then uh, it's it's something that that um, that um, you know it's refreshing to people. So. Uh, you can be sure that during this political campaign, we'll be telling it as it is. 
Okay, so Mr. Berlio, sorry, I wanted to get your opinion. I, I got it with that. But <clears throat> in terms of Sarah Duterte not being able to respond... Oh, to you, yeah, sorry. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't know where that is coming from. That is almost like uh, consulting her set of political advisors on costs and benefits of responding, you know, to this. Uh, and um, it could be that she doesn't know how to respond to it. Um, it could be that she doesn't want to engage me in a prolonged political discussion. Uh, so there may be various reasons for it, but, you know, um, I think it's, it's disappointing, you know, that um, she's not engaging me whether it's out of political cowardice or because her advisors have told her to keep her mouth shut, okay, or because she doesn't want to be exposed in a position where um, she might have to defend her running mate, who is indefensible, um, you know, Marcos Jr. Um, you know, so these are all the things that have uh, um, probably influenced her decision. I would just, you know, maybe recommend to her at this point that if she's not going to talk anyway, and uh, just to buy a piece of scotch tape and just put it on her mouth for the rest of the campaign. That way we'll understand why she can speak because there's scotch tape around her lips. So um, that will make it much easier so that she doesn't get bugged with requests for comments from people like you and from people like the Inquirer. All right. Well, Mr. Bellia, so thank you for answering that. So the next question I want to ask you is, so during the VP debate, uh, where a lot of people were, were saying that you won that debate, that you're the MVP and all these things that you did super well. So during that debate, you criticized Senators uh, Soto and Panglinan for passing the bill that lowered the income tax on big corporations in the country. And the reasoning towards you was that they lowered it just so that foreign investors would be more attracted to the Philippines to, you know, invest in all of these things. So do you think that's a fair answer on their end? No, it was a stupid answer to, to, to be frank, okay? Uh, you know, first of all, this big business and foreign investors have been pushing the government for a long time to lower the tax rates, okay? This was even before the pandemic, okay? and um, um, they used the pandemic as an excuse to push uh, the government um, to, oh, this is the time to do this. So they pushed the government to do it uh, because at this time the government was, oh, where will we get the money for um, you know the 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 COVID expenses? Uh, so it, it it was sort of um, 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 taking advantage uh, of the government uh, at a very bad time. Okay. Uh, 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 so secondly, it was stupid because you're cutting off a source of revenue um, which you really need, and with the with the the expectation that money foreign investment is going to come in during this time this is silly yeah 
foreign investment is not going to come in to an economy that's still in the water. Uh, and especially at the time that you have all the other economies, including the economies in the global north, um, you know, um, uh, wanting, you know, competing with you for money. Okay. So basically, um, uh, foreign investors do not come to a dead economy like the Philippines and many other countries were. So they were cutting off um, a great source of revenue to deal with the problems of the pandemic for nothing because it wasn't going to come in. Now, when those loss impact is going to kick in, is going to be after the pandemic, okay? When life begins and the economy begins to pick up again, people go out and spend, the money begins to circulate, the economy becomes more attractive, that's when the foreign investors, the foreign retailers will come in and say, okay, you gave us these tax cuts, you lowered the uh, um, floor on investment at which we could come in. Uh, you have basically said that you are lowering um, our participation as traders in the national economy from a paid in capital of 125 million pesos to 5 million pesos. Napakababa talaga niyan. Okay? And the, in terms of the uh, domestic focused domestic market focused enterprises uh, you basically put the ceiling or the floor um, uh, you know uh, whereby foreign investors for, uh, for only Filipinos at from two hundred thousand um, dollars to one hundred thousand uh, dollars okay so uh, so so, you know, I, my figures may be slightly um, blurred at this point, but the idea is that um, for domestic focused enterprises, um, um, it used to be $200,000. Uh, uh, that is below that foreign investors that want to focus on the domestic market could not, in fact, come in. So what happened was that was lowered to one hundred thousand, okay, uh, one hundred thousand dollars. So now that means that after the pandemic, all of these foreign enterprises will come in to to take advantage of this much loosened, more open, uh, used to be reserved for Filipinos only, uh, and that's going to kill our MSMEs. Okay, so you know, say. You know the, the logic of people like Pangilinan and and and, and Soto just did not make sense. You know, they said that they wanted to help out preserve our MSM, MSMEs, but they're actually inviting them in. You know, with much lower requirements, which is gonna kill a lot of foreign of of of, of Filipino retailers and domestic corporations. You know, so uh, that's that's. Um, you know that's economic suicide, but it's been going on for a long time, and um, I think that uh, the last uh, forty years uh, and the statistics bear this out. Um, we've had 
you know, constant opening of the Philippine economy through lower, very much lower tax rates, elimination of quotas, you name it, in manufacturing and in agriculture, they call this neoliberal policies or indiscriminate opening. It's been very radical, the Philippines, you know, when it comes to liberalizing trade, you know, one to four percent tariffs is, is extremely low. Um, what has happened? Um, manufacturing, industry after industry has been bankrupted. You name it, ceramics, furniture, paper, um, uh, petrochemicals, uh, garments, textiles, just go through the list of manufacturing commodities and Filipinos owned enterprises have been bankrupted. In the 1990s, we, um, we um, early 1990s, we used to have about 200 textile and garments firms that were of medium ent enterprise size. Um, you know, by the, uh, you know, by, by the early 2000s, you, they were down to uh, 20 and they're practically non-existent at this point in time. So if you look at agriculture, we used to be, before we joined the World Trade Organization, we used to be um, the, um, uh, we used to be the, um, uh, an agricultural, net agricultural exporting country, which meant that we exported more than we imported. After we joined the WTO, we just became extremely import dependent. And now the agricultural trade balance is in deficit to the tune of $7 billion. Okay. And uh, whether it's in manufactured goods or in agriculture, what uh, you have is super subsidized goods from rice to shoes to everything. Super subsidized goods in the sense that the producers in these countries that are exporting to us have a lot of government support. Okay, so they, you know, they, they have so much government support that it's hard to say that they're capitalist enterprises anymore. It, it seems like because they're so dependent on government support, they're really socialist enterprises like in the United States, it's socialist agriculture. Now I have no problems with socialism because I think that's, that would be great for our country, but hey, if there is one set of en en enterprises that are socialistic and another set like Filipino farmers that don't have subsidies at all uh, and they, 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 they are in the free market system and they can compete because their competitors have tremendous subsidies, then that's really going to kill them. That is the kind of very unequal trading system that has killed our agriculture and our um, manufacturing. I'll just give you an example. When I was growing up, uh, the 1960s, 19, uh, you know, we, we, there used to be Filipino shoes, um, uh, made here in Marikina. Marikina was the center of the shoe industry. It was world-class quality. You know, there was shoes that were called Angtibay, 
tough shoes ang tibay. And the Marikina shoe industry was really flourishing. It was serving the whole country. But it wasn't only that because the uh, upstream industries, yeah, like leather tanning uh, and all the other inputs that go into making a shoe, you know, uh, were, were active. Um, so, you know, there's this place in Bulacan called Mekawayan. You know, when people used to pass by it, people would smell the, 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 the smell of leather tanning, which is not a pleasant smell. But it was the smell of prosperity. Okay. Now, uh, after all this indiscriminate bringing in of, uh, bringing down of our tariffs, the Marikina shoe industry uh, no longer really exists. And um, a lot of upstream industries that used to furnish it with its inputs, like the Make Hawaiian leather tanning industry, no longer exists. Too. And with that has meant a lot of jobs lost. Um, uh, in fact, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost because of this supply chain, you know, that has died. And, and um, because of that, also, the skills, and these are very important, you know, um, uh, the skills that used to get passed down from one generation of shoemakers to another, one generation of workers in leather tanning to another, that also was lost. Okay, so ang lakas talaga, ang laki ng costs talaga nito, uh, because of the dual pressure of um, um, people, uh, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, the World Trade Organization, very strong pressure. And then our own technocrats and economists who were socialized into this kind of thinking that was not looking at things on the ground and were just calculating, making calculations that would show that, um, you know, that, you know, if, if you competed a cost and benefits, there were more benefits raw than costs to opening up the economy. But which, and these people never saw a factory. They never saw workers. They were just in their um, desks uh, or in their classes working with equations, you know? uh, oftentimes founded on uh, statistics that, you know, um, were problematic. So, uh, so my point is that, um, coming back to my concrete example, if you pass through Make Hawaiian at this point in time, uh, you no longer really smell the odor of leather, okay, which, you know, was bad. But it's, you know, you don't smell anything. But uh, what this means is that with the bad odor has also gone the jobs and the industries. And this is really, you know, sort of, you know, the Marikina shoe industry is a very, very good example of the parable of what has happened to us. And, you know, we've been arguing this for a long time. We have fight, fought against this kind of indiscriminate liberalization. Um, uh, we have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, seen during, after the 2008 financial crisis and the collapse of the world economy, uh, um, you know, during that time, 
you know that globalization as they call it um has failed globalization has created tremendous problems and in fact you find very few defenders of globalization at this point in time um, but in the philippines you still have this this kind of autopilot in which the more you liberalize the more you give up your economy the less the more you protection you have less protection you have the better but for 40 years this liberalization has done nothing but destruction to our economy to the point that if you want to explain why we have become so dependent on overseas workers and overseas jobs because that's now the only avenue to which so many of our people can go to because the opportunities have dried up here. There are no jobs, no decent jobs left. Um, and I was watching our women workers in the Ukraine tonight and they were asked in interviews why, you know, there's a war going on. Why don't you want to come back to the Philippines? And one of the workers basically said, and she summed it all up, because there are no jobs there. Because there are no jobs there, I would much rather risk my life here. And, you know, I used to be that head of the Committee on Overseas Workers' Affairs in the House of Representatives. And I used to go to different countries, especially in the Middle East. I was involved in rescue operations for our workers there who were trapped in civil war situations. Uh, I went to Syria to bring out workers in the midst of the uh, civil war back in 2011 and 2012. And, you know, a lot of those workers, even though they were being caught in the crossfire, said we'd much rather stay here because there are no jobs in the Philippines. No? So, you know, so it's a tragedy what has happened to this country and academics and technocrats and government officials have been responsible for it. And if Kiko Pangilinan and Tito Soto just could not see the logic of the bad logic of, of removing some of the last barriers in terms of protecting their industries and jobs, and saying that we need foreign investment to revive us when it hasn't done that for the last 40 years and it has just really disrupted us, no? uh, then I needed to, to make a point. And that's why I was so um, uh, determined to show that, you know, these two people uh, haven't really understood the plight of our people and our workers. And they don't understand that there has been mass destruction of the economy that has taken place over the last 40 years. And they are inviting more mass destruction. And so um, if I was angry I, and I lashed out at them, it was because I couldn't stand falsehoods being spread around. Um, slogans being spread around to justify bad policies. Um, slogans being justified, uh, being spread around to justify outcomes which will never come. And, you know, that's, uh, that's why I focused a lot on the economic policies 
because I thought that it's, it's this area that people really need to be jarred because people have been fed so much crap, ideological crap, you know, that we need to shock them uh, when it comes to uh, economic policies and then explain in the process why bad policies have been followed for 40 years and why these bad policies are responsible for the fact that we now have a broken economy. We now have a broken economy. And, you know, so many of our people prefer to go out and live outside the country because they don't see hope in this country anymore. Uh, but uh, we want especially to reach out to the young and to tell them, hey, it's time to rebel against this kind of policies that have been imposed on you by an older generation uh, that really did, you know, was, was, uh, was misinformed, had followed the wrong policies, and as a result, have given you a Philippines which is broken. No? So it's time to rebel. And one does that, you know, through the kind of debates that we had. Okay? I'm not sorry for having put Soto and Pangilinan on the spot. Because I think that they should be confronted with the policies, the bad policies, the consequences of the bad policies to which they have put this country. So, you know, um, if I were to do it again, yes, I would do it again. Okay, And uh, they, they, um, uh, they should be um, chastised. I mean, these two guys shouldn't be running for office. You know, they should be... I don't know what they should be running for, but they've failed. There is a failure of leadership that Soto and Pangilinan really represent at this point in time. I mean, I could go on and on. I could show up why Kiko Pangilinan says that he's representing the farmers, but actually he hasn't defended them. The legislative record is there. Okay. And... Um, but I couldn't do that in the context of that debate. I, I could really just focus on one, and that, that was uh, Tito Soto. Um, but to come back to the point, um, the, main, I, the main idea that I wanted to push through in that debate was there is no excuse for uh, Sara Duterte and Marcos uh, not to show up and expose their programs to the public. At least, at least Tito Soto and um, and uh, Kiko Pangilinan showed up. Uh, but when they started to spouse false ideas or outright falsehoods, I felt it was my responsibility to also try to strip them uh, of the smokescreen of falsehoods that they were trying to uh, to promote. Um, and, and th that's, that, that was the, that was the reason why that debate was so tough and hard on them and so refreshing to people, although there were people who were also offended by how direct I was because they were not used to this kind of confrontative tactics. But that's the kind of confrontation politics that we need in this country if we're going to move forward. Okay, telling things as it is. All right. Uh, so before we get to my next question, I just wanted to go to the 
comment section you know very quickly and there is a question here but for this question i just want like a quick response from you uh mr belia so the first comment is from carl paredes saying let's go bp alden belia uh this is when i think you were talking about um Sarduterte and marcus as well so he said let's go then Jed Montes said, you know, I don't think Trump copied Walden because Walden is known for his books and articles and Trump doesn't read. <laughs> <laughs> then um, after your, you know, after your answer regarding, you know, the Marikina shoe industry and such, Jed also said, thank you. Oops. Thank you, uh, Walden Bellio. Now, here comes the question that I just want a very quick response from you from. So Mickey Alonso said, I'm very impressed with you, sir, during the CNN VP debates. I'm sure you're not. I'm sure you're very used to people saying that. Um, how would you react to people saying that though you outshine all the other VP candidates, it is actually Senator Kiko Panglinan who has delivered all these years? Very quick response from you, sir. What has he delivered? I ask, what has he delivered? Name me one concrete thing that he has delivered. Um, let me just say here, uh, Paolo, that um, the biggest threat to our farm industry of the last 10 years was the debate over the Rice Tarification Act, whether or not we would withdraw the quota on rice and protect our farmers from all the subsidized rice flowing into the country from Thailand and Vietnam, okay? Um, uh, or we would keep them and not convert that quota into tariffs as the WTO demanded. When the voting came, Senator Pangilinan was not there. He abstained from the voting. Instead of opposing these measures, you know, to protect our industry, the rice industry, he abstained. I mean, that's political cowardice for somebody who says that he's for the benefits of our farmers who were opposing this rice tarification act and he later voted for uh, the financing the so-called transition financing of the rice tarification act which meant that he eventually voted for the rice tarification act because he voted for the financing of it but you know paulo this financing is really how do you how do you ease the pressure of poverty that is going to be visited on our rice farmers you know so that the impact of rice tarification in terms of living they're lowering their living standards won't be that harsh okay it is a sort of a, a kind of softening the blow kind of measure okay let's give these people x amount of pesos so that it won't be too hard on them what's going to happen so let's give them a measure some amount of money so that we can ease their transition from the countryside to the urban slums okay <laughs> so you know because they're losing their jobs they have to go to the city uh, they'll be forced to go to the city. They'll be in shanty towns and slums. So give them basically some money to be able to ease that that transition, okay, from poverty in the countryside 
to poverty in the city. That's what that financing is all about. And Kiko Pangilinan knows that. Did he fight for our farmers? No. Okay. So I challenge people, name me what it is. You know, I and you know, was Kiko Pangilinan there defending me when uh, he, he was part of Aquino's cabinet and I was a congressman and I resigned because I told Aquino that I cannot stand double standards because you're using your anti-corruption stance uh, against your enemies, but you're being tolerant with it, with your friends. You're tolerating corruption among your friends. And I told President Aquino that, hey, Mr. President, we just need one standard for our friends and, you know, other people, you know, and, you know, um, which was, of course, this was what, if you remember, kung walang korap, walang mahirap, that was all about it, no? And I believed in that slogan then, but when Aquino began to exercise double standards, I say, no, I can't stand this out of principle, I can't. And when I, I was fighting the president on that, you know, uh, for one standard, uh, did Kiko Pangilinan even raise any voice of dissent when um, uh, Aquino basically, um, you know, was uh, attacking me, uh, you know, saying all sorts of things that um, when I was just trying to preserve the principle of, of, of one standard. No. And a lot of the politicians in Aquino's cabinet, um, you know, because they were all buddies with one another, you know, and they were all involved in the uh, disbursement acceleration program scandal. Um, you know, they were silent. You know, even my own party then, you know, decided to go with Aquino and were silent about the tolerance of corruption, uh, you know, within his administration. So that's, I want to ask them about that. That's, you know, I mean, um, Mr. Pangilin was part of that team of the cabinet then. Um, so if people want to raise the past, I'm asking, what the fuck do you want to bring out in terms of what Pangilinan, in fact, did for you? Okay. I mean, there's a lot of posing going on here. Okay. But I ask them, you know, some very simple questions. You know, many of them. I mean, did any of them really put up a fight when Duterte uh, dragged um Senator Delim out of the Senate? I mean, you know, you ask Senator Delima. Delima, when I ask her, how about your political allies then? Did they come up and help you? And, you know, Senator Delima's answer, you know, was basically she expected more from her allies. But did anybody really stand up for her aside from just having a perfunctory resistance while Duterte was uh, imprisoning him, her, on false charges, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, supposedly um, abetting the drug trade and, you know, which were so false. No. Now, who came up to support Senator DeLima strongly? And I raised this during the debate, if you could, uh, you know, if you remember, uh, with Soto, because, you know, but... Aside from Soto, Soto, you know, sold out. You know, he, he sold out to the government on this one. 
he's the biggest ally of of Duterte until just recently. Um, but you know, I'm asking the others, the allies in the Liberal Party, did they really come to the support of uh, Lima? I did, and I was not even an ally of Senator Lima. Uh, it's just that I think that there was a principle that was by being violated that was at stake. And I had to fight, you know, for against the violation of due process that was being dealt to this person. Many of you whose views I probably did not share, but I never thought that, I didn't think that it was fair for anybody to be oppressed in the fashion Duterte was oppressing her. But to come back to my point, let's stop posing. Okay, I just bring out Senator De Lima's um, uh, um, uh, 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 problem, just to show that um, some of the people that say that they're all for this and all for that and human rights here and what, when it comes to the crunch, where are they? Where are they? Okay, and I don't think I'm, you know. <laughs> Since you, since the the, the reader brought uh, the the listener brought up um, uh, the question of Senator Pangilinan, I ask: Is somebody who wants to defend a rice farmers, does he or she abstain in the biggest decision that will affect our farmers in ten years, the Rice Tarification Act? No. He hid, and then he supported the financing for it, which meant support for the program to make them transition from poverty in the countryside to poverty in the city. Now that's the sort of crap that we need to expose. So if if there's you know if there's that sort of political crap that's going on and people are trying to present themselves as the leaders of the farmer, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, oh my God, that's such a fucking bullshit. That nearly needs to be exposed. And I'm sorry that that Senator Soto and Senator Pangilinan um, have had to bear the brunt of this, but I do the same thing with other people, you know, uh, you know, I, you know. So that's that's just me, and maybe you know, I, I you know, I, I told you some people will hate this political style, but um, but that's is, uh, but I think a lot of people will also think that. It's this kind of political style that 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 really is very much needed at at this point in time. You know, uh, we should never have the kind of presidential debate that we had last night, where the politicians, you know, were sort of very nice and courteous to one another, and um, it was only the non-politicians who brought up you know, real gut issues like Caliodi attacking uh, Bongbong Marcos. But, um, but, um, um, but um, Leodi um, was not beholden to interests. He wasn't thinking about cabinet position in case Bongbong wins, you know. But I'm just being frank, the way that politicians think. Pag hindi ka ay naatake, maske may pagkaiba yung um, mga paningin nyo, magkaiba yung mga policies nyo, may dahilan dyan. Kasi security yan, boss, di ba? That pag nanalo yung kaaway mo, 
siguro naman eh, meron there will be the opportunity para bigyan ako ng position no? uh, so kunyan uh, that that is some sort of um, um, the non attacking uh, or calling people into account and accountability for um, um, their policies or their approaches or their person um, is oftentimes rooted in a calculation of benefits of what if he or she wins um, I probably will need you know to make sure that I can have a cabinet position you know so yan yung mga, that's that's I just want to get uh, I just want to take out all the things that ha the smoke screen about the way politicians behave all right well thank you for that uh professor Belleville and actually, I'm sorry, that, really... that was a bit too long no it's all right that's all right but actually Carl want, requested for something that he said I would love to hear Prof Walden really break down if given the chance here uh we can't you know give you the whole chance because maybe we might be here for a while but Carl, I hope we got the taste of what you wanted from uh, Mr. Bellio. So, uh, Mr. Bellio, the next question is, and uh, I hope you could, you know, quick answer if possible. So let's sure, say sure. you and Kalyogi win for president and VP, right? Um, who among the current VP candidates would you consider offering a cabinet position to? The, <laughs> the current VP candidates? Yeah. To be honest, uh, at this point, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, looking at the roster of the VP candidates that were there. Uh, I think, you know, that I would definitely, uh, you know, consider um, see Dr. Willie Ong. I, you know, um, uh, you know, he is, in my view, he's been a, a person who's quite very very um interested in the interest i mean he's 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 very interested in the welfare of our people and i think he has shown that in terms of uh, his advocacies so you know see you know dr willie ong is you know some somebody that we would consider not that we would offer him the job right off uh, it's some he would be someone that I would imagine would be among the people that we would consider. Let me put it that way, because you just ask who among the VP candidates. But if you ask me, though, um, if you're not considering uh, Dr. Willie Ong, uh, are there people, other people that I would um, uh, prefer? Ah, uh, yes, ah, uh, yes, um, and um, and. Uh, however, uh, you know, I it, it might put them on the spot if I mention their names at this point in you time. Don't have to, yeah, you don't have to. But so in charge yeah. from the VP candidates, just Willie Ong, no one else. Yes. Okay. Um, so now the next thing I want to ask you is, do you so, because th there's this congressman, I unfortunately can no longer for, uh, remember his name, where he kind of wanted to change our electoral system. So I want to ask you, do you support the change of our electoral system we're in, um, similar how they do it in Brazil and France, or in the president and the vice president um, share one vote? Because right currently in the Philippines, 
you can vote for this president, but you can vote for a different VP. So do you support like the combination of both? Like if you vote for Coyote, you also vote for Walton Bellio. And also, do you support wherein there will be a runoff election where in the state, if no person gets 50% plus one, there'll be a second round of voting? Um, you know, for the vice president, I, um, I'm neutral on that. It, you know, it's, it has its advantages. It has its disadvantages. I can live with, uh, I can live with the president uh, being from a different country than the vice president. Um, I mean, uh, you know, different party than the vice president. So that, you know, for me, that's never been an, an issue. It has its advantages, it has its disadvantages. Uh, but the idea of uh, having a second round might be good. You know, that uh, basically most other countries now uh, have been moving towards a second round of voting so that if somebody doesn't get a clear majority from the, you know, in the first round, then um, uh, there's, uh, people are subjected or uh, not subjected, but they, they have to troop to the polls for a second round, uh, just among the first two. So that's, yeah. that I think I would favor. That I think I would favor. All right, um, next one is, so because of how our electoral system, and I'm sorry to ask you this, and I'm sure you will not enjoy this question, but because of how our, our electoral system works, there's a huge chance that there may be even just one person who would vote for a combination of Marcus Jr. and you as VP. So if that happens and Marcus Jr. wins for president and you win for VP, first one is how will you react? And second is what will you do? Well, you know, this is... Uh, um, well, of course, you know, I would be really sorely disappointed if... Caliodi lost and I won, okay? Uh, because we're the perfect team, I think. Yeah. He's my idol, <laughs> you know? So, um, but if that happened, Marcos Jr. won and I um, also won, yeah. um, I would be quite upset at this, uh, you know? And um, uh, I mean, this has been asked for me before and I would basically, you know, not um, not be able to to work with him. Um, now, if the further question is if he invited you to his cabinet or he invited you to a meeting, uh, um, would you go? And I would not. And my reason for this is this: I would be greatly tempted to punch him in the face and to make sure that uh, uh, to make sure that I do not do anything violent it would probably be better for me not to attend you know that meeting and finally I will just go into outright opposition uh, right away and lead you know or be one of the leaders of the opposition so that's that's fairly clear uh, at this point. And I, a previous answer to this that I had, which I think just, let's put it this way. Uh, some, of your, uh, some of the answers that we have, it's, it's you make it sound extreme in order to make a point, okay? 
uh, one of my answers to this was when it was posed to me, I said, okay, I would um, challenge him to a game of Russian roulette, okay? One bullet, you know, he can choose how many chambers there could be, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, and, um, and if he wins, then I won't be around to make life difficult for him because I will be in seventh heaven, okay? If I win, I become president, okay? So that's, uh, now, I, I use that, I use that to stress uh, or to, to just, you know, hyperbole is a way of um, making your feelings bare about a situation. And um, that's why I use the Russian roulette hyperbole you know, just to stress to people, you know, how I would feel about such an outcome. All right, I think that's uh, very fair. So last uh, question for this category of questions. So as you know, Esco Moreno is freely offering cabinet positions to different candidates for president. If he wants for president and offers you a cabinet, a cabinet position, would you accept yes or no? I would have to seriously think about it. Uh, my position is that with all the other candidates, I could, you know, I could have a working relationship with, okay? Um, it may or may not be a cabinet position. Uh, and uh, having a re working relationship doesn't mean that I do not go into opposition. It could be an opposition relationship. It could be a neutral relationship, it could be a positive working relationship, I don't know, okay? But um, uh, the only person that I would not work with is um, is, is, is Bongbong Marcos, uh, Marcos Jr. With the others, um, I would have to think about it and then I would have to, um, to see what kind of relationship I, I would, would have. I think the most comfortable relationship that I would have with a person like Isco Moreno is to be in the opposition. Uh, because, uh, you know, I don't trust the guy. No. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, uh, it's all show, that he's too eager to please, and he's the kind of person that would make deals with the devil to get what he wants, okay? So I would like to fiscalize. If he, if he became president, I certainly would prefer to be um, in the opposition uh, to him. But he's not somebody that I, that I would challenge to a game of Russian roulette, okay? Uh, he's, he's not uh, somebody that uh, I would avoid meeting with. Uh, so only know, one so, candidate you would challenge for that, and that's it. Just one candidate out of it. Yes, yes. So, uh, so let's just say that we might as well make this my standard. The only one candidate that I would challenge to a game of Russian roulette is is Marcos Jr. All right. Um, so the next category of questioning is about societal issues. All right. So it's quite a big um, category of questioning, but let's start out with this one. So with the current conflict between Russia and, U and Ukraine, if you're elected vice president, 
would you join the call of other countries and call out Russia for this invasion? And if possible, would there be any sanctions that you would give? No, I've already come out with my position on this, which is to um, condemn the invasion uh, and ask the United Nations to to start uh, or to promote negotiations between uh, Russia and the Ukraine. Um, Beyond that, um, I would be very hesitant about joining any coalition um, because uh, of a number of things. One is um, I think this is a time that we should be pursuing independent foreign policies. Uh, And secondly, there is no national interest involved when it comes to uh, the Ukraine crisis. And, And... uh, but the biggest thing that that you know that I have on this is that, in many ways, the Ukraine crisis was provoked by the um, policies of NATO and the United States, and this comes back right down to the situation uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1991, uh, and when it collapsed in 1991. Russia became a very weak country. NATO and the United States under Bill Clinton took advantage of that time to push NATO, incorporating all these countries in between Russia and uh, Western Europe into NATO. And um, bringing, you know, the threat was to bring NATO, which is a military alliance, right into the borders of the Soviet Union, of Russia. And... um, I think that what uh, what has spurred this invasion was the fear of Russia that uh, Ukraine would join uh, NATO, and once you have that, you would have uh, American U.S. weapons and missiles right at the border of Russia, and uh, so um, you know in, uh, this could have been solved by diplomacy. And I disagree that in invasion was the right thing to do. Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I condemn Russia for, for doing that. But this could have been a subject of negotiations because I think that um, there is every... Um, uh, 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 Russia has every right uh, in terms of protecting its security to have a neutral country. Uh, or have neutral countries at its borders, and not countries that are armed to the teeth, um, uh, that are allied to a big, big superpower like the United States. Okay, if you remember back in the um, 1960s, the Cuban Missile Crisis was triggered by the Soviet Union's um, uh, provision of uh, short-range missiles to Fidel Castro, which just in a country that's just 90 miles off the United States. And so that's, you know, what the U.S. did then is in many ways what Russia is doing now. So my, my, my sense is, one, there's got to be a diplomatic solution to this. And secondly... Uh, I think that they should agree on having 
uh, uh, neutral states that are not allied either with Russia or the West, you know, on the borders of uh, Russia. No, and uh, I think that is going to be uh, a situation that 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 uh, can be negotiated, can be negotiated. So, um, so in that sense, my position would be one: condemn Russia for the invasion. Two, ask the United Nations to mediate, and three, support um, a solution that would guarantee neutrality to the states bordering Russia, uh, so that Russia doesn't feel that nuclear weapons from the United States are right at its throat. You know, and because that that um, you create a situation like that, and the United States has in fact created this situation you know by its constant push to bring ukraine into nato to create governments that in in ukraine that are sympathetic or pro us um that that triggers a lot of um, very visceral uh and strong fears real existential threats that are felt in by 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 the russians so I think this is the best solution for me at this point in time. Those those three uh, general principles to resolve this conflict, and uh, I am still confident that this will be this conflict will be resolved that way. All right. So the next thing I wanted to ask you is: so when you look at pollution uh, we have here in the country, because you know part of the platform, of course, both you and Kaliotis. Um, climate change, right? You know, to, to improve and all these things. So here in the country, a big chunk of the pollution that we have are non-recyclable garbage, you know, such as sachets and such. So how would the Kaliobi and Kali administration change this? Because usually those who buy sachets are those who, you know, can't afford to buy bottles and all these things because they live, you know, with a day-to-day salary. So how would you or how would the Kaliobi and Bali administration change this? Well, we definitely would have um, uh, a program when it just comes to plastics. It would be very important to have a real mass education coordinated with the media uh, about the harmful effects of plastics on the environment in that they're not biodegradable. And then secondly, uh, we are going to promote, which some cities are now promoting, um that they the use of uh biodegradable um, um, uh, uh, products to wrap things around to serve as baskets to serve as 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 support no um uh and uh, make that the norm uh, you know back to the era before plastics and you know that would also um you know that would also, uh, you know, trigger the rise of our paper industry, and you know, and you know, there would be a, a good, a number of good economic effects there, aside from, you know, good environmental effects. And then, we will really have to be able to um, uh, um, have a, a, a sweep uh, of both land and the seas around us. Uh, to be able to gather the plastics, you know, that are clogging waterways uh, on our shores at this point in time, 
And, you know, we, you know, if, if you ask me right now, my sense is we would probably need a good sized burial ground, you know, someplace uh, for these plastic products. So, um, I mean, we need, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, a good disposal, this, uh, you know, solution for disposing them. And uh, we need also a program uh, with incentives for moving packaging from uh, uh, from um, um, plastics to um, paper. And um, my sense is that um, uh, that that sort of environmental problem um, is 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 it, you know it has to be addressed. It is a major problem at this point in time, and it needs to be one of the things that. Uh, a call the other Walden administration was must need to focus on. Um, of course, we know that there are quite a number of environmental problems, but this is one of them that we at least have to begin put in the beginnings of a possible solution. To it. Okay, so before I get to my next question, uh, to Joshua Erickson, we'll save this question for the latter part. It's an excellent question, but I would like to save it for later on. Uh, to Jed Montes, he has a question, which is, when was the era of plastic, or before plastic, because when he grew up, uh, plastic was the norm? I think it was like the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, right, Professor Bellio, when uh, people were still using, like, you know, paper bags and such. I think it was maybe around the 80s or 90s when plastic was the norm. Yeah, yes. Well, you know, it, when I was, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, we already had plastics, uh, but paper bags, you know, were still very much, the norm uh, so I think you know when plastics really began to take over was probably in the in in the 80s and the 90s and you know so though and so that's just you know I haven't done this research I'm just yeah. from, on, from my own growing up uh, I do sense that the norm back then was when it came to packages and everything else it was cardboard it was paper so uh yeah all right so next question is and hopefully you know we have a few questions uh mr bellio uh quick answers you know yes or no as much as possible sure sure so sure it's um abroad transgender people are allowed to change their gender marker from male to female or vice versa in terms of you know legal documents passports etc would you support this in the Philippines? Yes or no? Uh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Um, the next one is, would you support the movement of allowing LGBT marriages in the Philippines? Oh, yes. That's one of our, uh, that's that's uh, one programmatic uh, platform. Uh, uh, that's one of the uh, points in our social development platform. Definitely. All right. Uh, next one. Would you support the legalization of divorce in the country oh yes uh, definitely this is something that should have been done years years back uh, the philippines now is the only country in the world aside from the vatican that does not have divorce and uh, i think i was disappointed with lenny robredo's answer last night as well as with some of the other candidates that uh, you know basically said they did not want divorce um, mainly in order I, I think it was both 
it, it was just to make sure they got the the Catholic vote. No. And that's it's terrible when the benefit of the people of thousands of couples locked in loveless marriage, you know, um, and, you know, the poor cannot afford this process of, uh, of annulment, which only benefits the Catholic hierarchy. Um, 250,000 uh, an annulment, who can afford that among the poor? So, you know, uh, Lenny Robredo, I mean, she should have, instead of, 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 of trying to please the Vatican and the Catholic hierarchy, she should have, you know, basically have stood her ground and said, you know, that divorce is a very important legislation that we need at this point in time. But she doesn't have that kind of politi political courage. All right. Um, the next one is, do you support the decriminalization of abortion and legalization of abortion in the Philippines? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm, we're not advocating abortion, by the way, okay? uh, but we support its decriminalization, you know, because um, uh, at this point in, 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 there are an estimated 600,000 abortions carried out every year, okay? And uh, 100,000 of those um, women need hospitalization because of complications from abortion. And then 1,000, uh, an estimated 1,000 women die from it, uh, from, uh, from illegal abortion. So we need, you know, to stop this, this tremendous uh, negative impact on our women, uh, we really should legalize abortion ha and, you know, make sure that it is handled, it is done in safe um, uh, ways instead of forcing people to underground uh, kind of uh, situations that just expose them to real, real, very, very difficult conditions that may result in their death. So, uh, again, this is one of the legislation that we really need at this point. The way that I put our legislative agenda when it comes to such cultural matters is we need to drag the Philippines from the 17th century to the 21st century. Uh, and uh, we really have to be a real modern society, if I may put it that way. All right, so the last one for the quick fire questions is, do you support the legalization of marijuana for both medical and non-medical use? Uh, for medical reasons, uh, yes. Uh, for uh, non-medical recreational reasons, I think that uh, uh, it has been, you know, all the studies, you know, that uh, have looked at the use of marijuana um, have, um, uh, in fact, uh, answered, most of them, that it is non-harmful in its effects, you know. So I, I would uh, support legislation that will gradually legalize it you know? uh, and, um, uh, and make, its, you know, make this legislation uh, becoming permanent, you know, um, uh, in, in, in effect, a law, the criminalization of marijuana uh, becoming permanent, I would support uh, that 
once all the studies are in because you know we have to we have to satisfy the um you know the, the people in this country that um, still equate marijuana as a dangerous drug and so that i would be for a gradual process of legalization um rather than uh, a one time one fell swoop kind of thing so that would be a progressive legalization of marijuana uh, coupled with studies that show its actual impact so that we can convince people that it is a non-harmful drug. Okay, so, sorry, I wanted to stay in this issue. So basically, Mr. Bellio, you support the legalization either way? Whether it's uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, it's, it's yeah. just that, it's just that uh, for reasons of medical emergency, uh, it is very important to, to legalize medical marijuana at this point in time. Um, because for there are many people that that and I know friends who have passed away, uh, especially from cancer, that that uh, felt that the only way that they could withstand the pain was to have marijuana, uh, and uh, you know so that they would they would you know because it's 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 in many ways a pain reliever, but. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the widespread use of marijuana, I would be for that being a more progressive process in which we calm public fears uh, by having studies, you know, yeah. that would accompany this process. So yes, yes, it's just that I'm just, I'm just, I just want to make sure that we have, you know, that we bring people along with us rather than impose it on them. Actually, the reason why I wanted to confirm that is your running mate, Kaliodi, was actually on Iglap, I think that was maybe uh, two weeks ago, give or take. Mm -hmm. And when I asked him this question, he said that for medical use, automatic, yes. But when it comes to recreational use, he kind of wanted to park it on the side until he gets more studies. So I just want a quick answer from you. How would you convince that okay, we both win? How would you convince Kaliodi now? You know, let's make it um steady. You know, let's not impose it on people uh let's pro you know um slowly but surely we'll make it legal how would you convince him to to get on that since he wanted to park that issue first oh i mean i i don't think i'd have any difficulties convincing kaliode to come on board on that uh i think he would be for a progressive legalization uh, accompanied by studies uh uh, so I'm I'm quite confident that you know Caliotti would would like me listen to what the science says instead of what the um, law and order people that are, have a vested interest uh, in criminalizing marijuana use would you know would want. So um, I mean, Caliotti, I don't think we would have a difference uh, when it comes to that. All right. So the next thing I wanted to ask you is, in the country, you know, a lot of countries actually, um, socialism has had a bad rap for a very long time. And conservatives would give you examples such as Venezuela, you know, with its crisis right now, Cuba with its medical crisis right now. And for ASEAN, you can look at Pol Pot, right, who claimed to be a socialist back then. How could you convince Filipinos that socialism is actually good and not any of these other um quote unquote bad examples 
Well, I would say, you know, for instance, you know, that many of the countries in Europe um, in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, they were social democratic societies um, uh, in which uh, government played a very strong uh, role in the economy. Um, many of key industries um, were run by government. And um, there was still capitalism, of course, definitely, but there were very strong controls on the market so that the market did not run wild and created tremendous problems for people. And if you remember when he was asked uh, what was his ideal socialist society, um, Bernie Sanders said Denmark, okay? Uh, and, and so uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that societies which have moved towards socialism may not have come completely to socialism, but certainly, you know, moved towards socialism. There are a number of really good examples of that uh, in the Western social democratic tradition. Now, I'm not talking now about since the 2000s when many of them began to remove the controls on the market. They adopted neoliberal policies. But in, you know, in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you, 90, uh, even up to the 90s, uh, you had um, very strong controls on capital, okay? And um, this also had societies in which um, you had um, uh, more fairly equal um, uh, levels of income equality, okay? Compared to what we have right now, where you have a very few people owning over 50% of the wealth, like, like in the Philippines, where less than 3% of the population owes um, more than 50% of the wealth. And so uh, what I'm trying, I guess what I'm trying to say is yes, there are examples of countries that have moved towards socialism and you can, you, you know, they're there. Uh, secondly, uh, if you look at um, in, the, in, in Southeast Asia, um, uh, people would say, what is the most successful country in Southeast Asia? It's Singapore, okay? And Singapore, um, you have, you know, basic infrastructure, government enterprises, the MRT in Singapore, um, but, you know, so many government, uh, so many corporations uh, are owned by the government. And yet Singapore, you know, yes, it, 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 it of course, has market and private enterprise, but government plays a very, very important role in the lives of people and people who say that, oh my God, look at Singapore's public housing program, okay? Um, uh, and this is one of the successes of Singapore. Uh, of course, some people would dispute that, but the public housing program is a government um, uh, socialist program, okay? It is provision of free housing to Singaporeans, yeah? yeah. Or provision of um, free housing at very, very low levels of rent to Singapore. And so, um, although Singapore has this image of being a successful capitalist society, if you look beneath the surface, so many of its social policies are socialist, including its public housing program, you know, which is, you know, the provision of housing for all, either free or at very low levels of rent. Yeah? So um, uh, finally, what do we mean by socialism that we're fighting for? One is at the political level, we want 
um, a country that is democratized from below. We want a country in which, you know, democratic decision-making comes from below up to the summit. At the different levels of society, you may begin at the bottom with budgeting, but more direct participatory democracy. That's, that's the socialism that we're after. Not this kind of system in which elections are used by the elite uh, to legitimize their control over society, which is a top-down kind of democracy. So ours would be a ground-up kind of democracy. Secondly, what we're talking about is having an economy that would, um, uh, what we call a mixed economy, in which you would have um, state enterprises run by state, cooperatives run by people's cooperatives, um, uh, private enterprises, of course, privately owned, um, and um, uh, worker management firms, worker managed firms that um, 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 in which workers are represented both at the enterprise level, controlling it, but also at the top of government agencies and at the top of national policy, workers would be represented in actual decision-making. Um, so, um, um, and then there's planning. You know, um, you, while definitely, you know, the market will operate, you will also have strong planning that would plan where to bring the economy, where to bring the society. So that is the kind of real pragmatic socialism that we're talking about. Pragmatic, but at the same time, forward kind of thing. You know, so it's not socialism in the sense of the Soviet, old Soviet bloc uh, of this very centralized um, totalitarian socialism uh, from um, from uh, controlled from the center. No, uh, no, we don't. We're that's and, and that, it's not central planning. It's more along the lines of how social democracy evolved in Europe, especially in Western Europe, the Nordic countries, and that sort of thing. And it's it's this kind of uh, of democratic socialism where you have participatory politics in both politics as well as in the management of the economy. And then you have a mixed economy whereby different types of enterprises, private, you know, um, cooperatives, worker-managed firms, uh, uh, you know, coexist. Um, you know, so it's not a pure, uh, you know, socialism as, as, as you might call it, you know, of, of a pure socialism that people have in mind when they talk about state control. No, it's a very pragmatic and at the same time visionary and democratic form of socialism, which is why what we have, what we can say is that uh, it's a democratic socialist uh, program. And, um, you know, um, socialism is evol evolving. There have been failures, true, um, but people come back to it, you know, especially now that capitalism is in crisis. Um, so many people are saying we need to move towards a more coordinated but participatory system that goes beyond the uh, extreme profit-making that now characterizes capitalism and creates such big gaps between uh, 
uh, you know, a, a tiny few and the big majority. So that is a movement right now that's all over the world, moving towards that kind, you know, of, 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 of system. And that's what uh, my candidacy and that of Caliodi really represents. We're moving towards that future, you know, and asking people, don't be caught up in the old slogans, don't be caught up in the old um, propaganda that says, oh, you have just the evil central committee controlling, you know, uh, you know, we are for a kind of more open view towards the future of what can people do if they can cooperate instead of compete with one another. We are after a system that places cooperation at the center of things rather than competition, and which is the big difference between a capitalist society and a socialist society in that cooperation is the centerpiece of socialism, competition is the centerpiece of capitalism. All right, so um, thank you for that, uh, Mr. Bellio. So I just have one uh, question regarding the Marcuses, and you know, if you could um, answer, you know, quick answer on this one. So why do you think the Filipino people are so enamored by the Marcos family? To the point that Marcos Jr. said that his campaign will not do any kind of mudslinging, and yet Aimi does it, and yet people don't call him out. I mean, aside from Aimi, uh, recently, um, Caliodi's website, when you go to it, goes to Marcos Jr.'s website. So that's kind of mudslinging in its own way. So quickly, why do you think people, the Filipino people, are so enamored by this family that for them, uh, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, we still support them. We still love them. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, I think uh, there are several things here. Um, one is um, the a lot of people, um, almost 50% of the population, if not more now, were either small children when uh, 1986 took place, which threw them out, the family out, uh, or were born after 1986. Okay, so the experience that uh, of this large masses of people are um, what has happened over the last 36 years of the EDSA, what we call the EDSA uprising. Uh, and, you know, what they feel mainly is promises unfulfilled, okay? They have seen the destruction of manufacturing and agriculture that I talked to you about, the loss of jobs, economic policies which have not created opportunity but in fact increased poverty. Uh, we've seen that the political system that emerged out of EDSA is one that promotes very... Um, intense competition among political dynasties, but at the same time uh, prevents any real change from benefiting most of the population, okay? So the elites compete, but they unite when it comes to any sort of social reform. And you've seen that with agrarian reform and so many other things. So, and um, we've seen the continuing um, uh, rule uh, uh, of of dynastic elites. So what people grew up with is a big contrast between the promises 
of ending poverty and more equality that is enshrined in the EDSA Constitution, the 1987 Constitution, and the realities of continuing inequality and poverty and non-delivery on those promises. So if you combine that with the fairly coordinated Marcos effort to prettify their father's regime um, as instead of being the nightmare years where uh, there were um, um, 30,000 people tortured, over 3,000 who were subjected to extrajudicial execution, 70,000 prisoner, you know, um, made prisoners, and, you know, large-scale human rights abuses. Uh, uh, what do we see? You know, um, um, you combine those two, this coordinated internet campaign with a lot of the best technical advisors and the disappointment with what happened over the last 35 years, uh, it's understandable why um, a large number of people, including young people, would be attracted to a regime that they never experienced, but they only see um, the propaganda that's coming out in the internet about this. Okay, So uh, I'm not surprised. The, the combination of prettifying the distant past and the disappointment with the promises of the EDSA uprising that were never fulfilled. That's a very potent combination. The third thing that I would just say here is, um, it's also important, um, which is, you know, that um, you didn't really have a coordinated government effort to teach what happened during martial law. Uh, the human rights abuses, the terror that took place, the burning of houses, the military running wild, um, that should have been taught in the schools, okay? But no, there was no coordinate effort to do that after 1986. And part of it, I think, was some political kind of reconciliation because between elites that had been associated with Marcos and the opposition elite that was represented by Cory Aquino. So there was that sort of compromise to say, okay, let's let's not touch the educational curriculum uh, to, to, to expose what happened during the Marcos period. The first a law, in fact, um, that said there must be an effort to teach about martial law was um, something that uh, I was one of the principal sponsors of in 2013, which was the Marcos human rights victims reparation law that says that, in fact, there must be an effort um, to, um, as part of that law, to teach people about what happened during martial law uh, during that period. So um, it's inexcusable that it took that long, that it took, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that it was left up to me and my colleagues back in 2012-2013 to be able to pass that law. Uh, it, this teaching should have been done in the first years after 1986. So these are the reasons why I think that you have a part of the population, you know, that 
is, shall we call it, has been fooled by the Marcoses into thinking that um, uh, their father's regime was, uh, was um, you know, the, the kind of uh, golden age that uh, it never really was. It was the nightmare years, uh, you know, of, of our people. So uh, that's, that's how I would put that. And that's how I've explained it to, to everyone. All right. Well, thank you for that, uh, Professor Bellio. So we're in the last uh, category of questions, uh, and this is mostly about you, actually. So the first question is, uh, you know, a quick response. Who is a world leader that you admire the most? You can mention someone who's living or who is, you know, no longer living. Who is the world leader that I admire the most? I would... Uh, uh... I would probably um, put Gandhi up there, you know, um, uh, you know, as somebody that I would admire very greatly. I would, of course, um, although he was not a leader, but he was a moral leader, I, I would put Jose Rizal and Andres Bonifacio up there. You know, I mean, they were world-class leaders. Um, I would um, uh, definitely put Martin Luther King up there, you know, uh, as somebody that I would, um, you know, admire. Um, I would say um, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you know, that uh, I would I would put up there. So, um, you know. Um, and these are, um, but I would also put up there um, leaders of indigenous communities that led the opposition to the destruction of their people, uh, like um, Sitting Bull, okay, uh, like Geronimo, okay, yeah. uh, and uh, you know Chief Crazy Horse. Uh, I mean, these are these are the real leaders, you know. So those are the range of people that I really admire. Yeah, um, for our viewers and uh, listeners, uh, Geronimo, uh, Crazy Horse, and such—they are all American Indian Native Americans. They're all chief, chiefs uh, for their tribes. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, the next one is. So I'm not sure if you're able to answer this. If, if you're not, it's okay. You could just simply say none. But from the current candidates for VP, if you yourself were not running for VP, who would you vote for? Oh, the current candidates for VP. If I were not running for VP. Yeah, uh, you know, you're a normal Filipino just voting. You know, you're not a candidate yourself. Uh, I would really be hard put to vote for... Uh, uh, I think you asked this in the beginning. Uh, I would, I would probably be open, although I wouldn't say yes that I would vote for him if I were not running and there were this whole set of candidates for VP. Well, I would. Probably... I think what I asked you about was the cabinet positions. The what earlier in the program? 
uh, cabinet positions, you know, from the current lot. But this question is more on who would you vote for? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the one that I would be open to voting for, although I still have to think about it really because I haven't given it some thought, is, is Willie Ong. Okay. So Willie Ong mm -hmm. would be your choice. I mean, that you would think about. It's not a yeah. meet yes, sure. but it's something yes. you think about. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So the next one I wanted to ask you is, why did you agree to become Kaliodi's VP? Well, I agreed to become his Kaliodi's VP because um, one, I admire Kaliodi. I admire somebody who has been fighting for people's rights and labor rights in particular all these years. He has the on-the-ground experience of what it is to be poor and what it is to fight for the rights of people. And he's the only candidate, um, VP or vice president or president that has that experience. So um, uh, that's why I, I, um, I, that's the first reason why I, I support him. The second reason, of course, is that I ran. You know, I mean, I was being asked to run for president, uh, but I felt that this is, you know, I'm too old at this point. I want somebody more vigorous. And then Taliodi stepped forward, and I said he was the ideal candidate, so I fully supported him, okay, for the reasons that I have given you. And then... He turned around and said, hey, Walden, can you run as my vice president? And so after supporting him for so much to be president, and he turns around and asks your help, you cannot refuse him. It was an offer that I could not refuse. So I said that I would think about it for a few days. Then I finally decided, okay, I'll do it. And then I plunged right into the campaign. And um, I think Kaliodi knew you know the the uh, you know what were the um what i would bring to the campaign you know i i think he 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 knew that you know i would be a volatile element in the campaign that uh you know that uh, that my, the style that i would bring to the campaign was an incendiary one okay uh but you know, I'm glad that he was willing to take all those risks and and um, and put me, support me. And I think we make a very good team because he is a very gentle guy. Okay? He is a very statesman-like person. He's, you know, he's he's very genuine. You know, but he's also has gravitas. You know, this is you know you know the you know, and. Um, um i am what i am uh you know i and um to put it one way he plays the good cup in the tandem and i play the bad cup you know the one who basically is out to light fires uh and um i think we complement one another in that way so um uh it's going to be I think this is, you know, um, well, Aimee Marcus said, you know, that the match between uh, um, Bong Bong and Sarah was a match made in heaven, but this was because 
um, she meant, and she said this, that it would bring the Marcuses of who controlled the North with the Dutertes who controlled the South and bring them together in one family. Uh, and, you know, this was a brazen way of saying we're going to divide up the country among the two of us. Uh, and she said that was the match made in heaven. Actually, that is a match made in hell. The real match made in heaven is between Kaliode and myself. This is the match made in heaven. This is the match made for the Filipino people. And that's why, um, that's why uh, uh, I think, you know, that in the um, um, remaining uh, two weeks, I mean, two months and, uh, you know, a week or so, two weeks remaining in the campaign, um, you know, we will uh, be able to, uh, to get up there. Uh, we're confident we will eventually win. Um, and um, it might mean that we will defy the odds. But, you know, what can we say? Miracles always happen. And if we won, this would be not the first time that something like this, this kind of miracle would happen. All right. Um, so the next thing is you keep comparing yourself to Trump in the sense that politically, not the same, you don't like his politics, but the way he expresses himself and all these things you find refreshing. But online, people didn't, actually, I've never really seen anyone say that you're similar to him, but someone who people compared you to is more on a Bernie Sanders. So how do you feel about being compared to Bernie Sanders? That's fine if people can compare me to Bernie Sanders. I, um, uh, you know, people have done that. That's fine. I, I like that. I, I just, it's just that, you know, the kind of style that I have, um, I, I think it's more of the incendiary kind rather than the sort of gravitas kind of serious uh, type of the thing, the Bernie Sanders. I, uh, I, uh, I think that I'm much more, um, um, how would you put it now, um, very flexible in the way I, in my style, and um, more incendiary, just like Trump is. But, but at the same time, I, I guess the difference between me is not only Trump's, uh, you know, politics, which I really hate, but also the fact that when he tosses things around, he doesn't think about them. No? Um, I think about what I toss around. No? Uh, and... Um, if I become incendiary in a Filipino context, it's because uh, I don't really don't mind if it destabilizes people because it's the truth. So uh, it's in that sense. Uh, you know, I, I, I care so much about the truth that if somebody is um, speaking, my BS detector comes up. And uh, I'm going to call BS for what it is. So in that sense of being incendiary, um, I've always been that way all my life. Uh, and 
you know, it's uh, for being incendiary. I, uh, you know, had brushes with death a couple of times early on in my life, even. Uh, and um, I robbed the World Bank. You know, you know. I mean, only a crazy person would go into the World Bank and engineer a plot to take out all its documents related to the Philippines and succeed, you know, over uh, a period of three to four years when we could have, if we had been caught, we would have been put in jail. Uh, only an incendiary person would have walked out of a trial in San Francisco, uh, told the judge to go fuck himself and say that we didn't recognize his authority over the court, at which point the U.S. Marshals took us, put us in jail, and then had to release us because we went on a hunger strike and the prison authorities in California were worried, you know, that we were providing an incentive for the prison population to riot when they heard, you know, that we were uh, conducting a hunger strike. So, so um, basically, um, um, this is what I've been doing all along. And I think when we were forming the anti-globalization movement, uh, the international meetings and confrontations, Seattle and everything that I participated on, um, uh, those things have come about and broken the wave of globalization had we not been out there on the streets taking everything working in the same style that i have worked so basically uh i'm just putting my style uh, into the electoral politics and um uh, uh, i think you know yes as i guess Again, there will be people offended, but I think most people, you know, would uh, would appreciate this kind of political style of telling it as it is, and um, and just um, uh, just um, enlivening uh, Philippine politics this way, instead of you know the usual bullshit that goes passes for Philippine politics, people dancing on streets, on the stage. Um, if I want to make a point, I'll do anything to make a point. I used to don the costume of Kermit the Frog, um, you know, to, to make comedy on the streets. We went into the International Monetary Fund. I was dressed as Kermit the Frog, you know, Sesame Street with Miss Piggy. Uh, and asked to meet with the managing director. And when we were asked who we were, I said, I'm Ferdinand Marcos, and this is my wife, Imelda. Of course, we got thrown out, but we made a point. We made a point. We made it to, you know, you know, you do anything to make a political point, you know, even if it's uh, comedic. If, if, if you do it through comedy or you do it through anything else, uh, the thing is, it's no holds barred politics. And that's what I want to bring into this campaign. And in the process, transform 
Philippine political culture into a more confrontative one in which um, people's interests are exposed and people fight for their interests and fight for their communities with the vigor that they should be fighting for their communities. So um, the debate last Saturday, I mean, uh, what can I say? It was, yeah, it, it was just my job as usual. I mean, to have gone there to that debate and behave, you know, in this crazy, civilized, boring fashion that, you know, practically all the other candidates did and put people to sleep. Uh, I mean, that's a disservice. At least enliven people. At least give them a show. Because sometimes giving them a show is the way that they can begin to really be receptive to your uh, ideas. Above all, don't be boring. Okay, uh, Just tell it as it is. Uh, and and that's my politics. All right. Well, Mr. Belli, I just have one last question for you. Uh, before sure. <laughs> We've actually done overtime with this. I appreciate you, you know, still being here. Uh, but just one last question. So let's just say that you know, on the off chance that you do not win for vice president, what what's what's next for Professor Walden Belli? Oh, what's next is, um, I'm 76, uh, you know, uh, and um, what's next? Uh, well, let me just say this, I'm, I'm getting close to the grave, okay, okay, and, uh, you know, it could be, although maybe in my case, it's, it's, it's going to better to be burned rather than buried in the ground um uh, you know for which you don't need graves okay uh, but but basically i think that i this has been an interruption in what i really want to do because i've been doing a lot of writing on global trends the rise of authoritarianism globally uh and i've written for you know both you know books as well as articles and periodicals on this i've written on uh, china uh, and in fact at this point in time uh, one of the articles that i did on china that came out uh, in the socialist register uh, is one of the articles that are most consulted on the china's political economy and that's what I really want to do is to to make my understanding of China even deeper because it's such an important actor in the global economy. And that's what my trajectory was until I got recruited into this political campaign by Labanang Masa. Uh, and, um, but, but if I am not elected, then... I, I am going back to, to this study of China that I've already begun uh, because um, um, if I can be really frank with you, Paolo, 
I'm really bored with Philippine politics. Um, and what really excites me is understanding global economic trends like the rise of China and the competition between China and the United States. Okay? Uh, if I'm participating in a boring political system, it's because I am doing it out of duty. Uh, one has to do this kind of thing, expose the bullshit of politicians, expose the way that the elites have, you know, for so many hundreds of years, uh, exploited our people, you know, uh, and expose the various ways by which they continue to exploit our people and work with people to have uh, solutions that and fight for solutions. So, um, um, you know, I, um, I'm bored by Philippine politics. I have to grit my teeth to go through this. But since I'm involved in it, and I think it's a duty, you know, then I'm going to be involved with it in my own way, in my own fucking way. And whoever doesn't like my own fucking way better get fucked off. And that's essentially what I was telling Tito Soto, fuck off during that debate. Telling Senator Pangilinan, I don't like your bullshit, fuck off. And of course, the biggest fuck off of all is Marcos and Duterte. And I'm telling both of them, please fuck off because you're just something that the Filipino don't, people don't want. And I hate the fact that you're taking my time to get rid of you, you know, uh, because I could be doing better things than having to deal with the shit that Marcos and Duterte have um, given the country. I could really be doing better things, like studying China's political economy instead of shoveling the shit that all of these politicians and elites, you know, have piled into our country. But it's a duty. You have to shovel the shit. And the best way to shovel that shit is to shovel that shit in their faces. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Belia, for your candidness and for answering all the questions. Uh, that's it for me. Uh, but before I let you go, you know, I'm sure I have a lot of viewers and Spotify listeners the next day who would want to, you know, maybe contact your team, you know, learn more about your platforms. Because unfortunately, you know, we aren't able to tackle the Kaliodi and Belia platform as much as we wanted to in this episode. Sure. But where can they? But where can they contact you, your team, etc.? Uh, would it be? Um, let me see right now because um, I thought that my chief of staff would have given you his number oh no sorry what i mean is for our viewers not for me but for our viewers uh okay uh, well is there like a uh, facebook page a website yeah 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 you know there are uh, you know sites uh, i have a facebook page uh and i have also a twitter account i i um you know i i, I should have given you this from the very start um okay. But I have a Facebook page and I have a Twitter account and I have a personal Facebook page. Just put Walden Bellio, you know, and and um, Labanang Masa has a Facebook page also. Uh, so uh, just Labanang Masa, 
Walden Bello, uh, both on Twitter and on 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 Facebook. That that's that uh, you know then people can 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 reach us, and we encourage people to 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 try to do so, uh, because we need all the help we can get. Uh, we don't have any big money backing. But um, you know we are dependent entirely on volunteers, but um, and on small contributions from people. Uh, but that's increasing at this point in time. The more we get exposure, and the more see the kind of candidates that we are, uh, and the more people see that we're you know not the old type of politicians like Soto and Pangilinan and all this. Yeah, people. Then I think they will be, you know, quite supportive of us, and definitely, um, you know, uh, be supportive of the fact that um, we can't allow Marcos and Duterte to come to power, and that's that's a very important objective of the campaign. Great. Well, thank you again so much, uh, Professor Walden Value, for your time. Uh, to our viewers, thank you as well. If you do want to contact the team of Walden Value, you just type Walden Value on Facebook or, or in Twitter or Laban ng Masa as well on Facebook and yes. Twitter. You can contact them there, ask them all the questions about the platforms and such. Uh, Professor Value, thank you again so much for being here. Iglap will be back again this Thursday. But then again, uh, Professor Value, thank you to all our viewers and listeners. Thank you again. Uh, take care and good night, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you too. Thank you too. And um, can I ask?